Levo to the right hand, puts Herb down, he's gonna jump him hard to the ice. Brady Levo just loves to fight. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome My dream of being a professional hockey player became a reality, but it was all taken away from me in a very short period of time. For many years, hockey was my outlet. Hockey was my drug. When I had a stick in my hand, nothing else mattered. I was able to break into the Western Hockey League in 2004, and I even won the Swift Current Broncos Rookie of the Year. During the summer of my rookie year, I experimented with drugs for the first time. After just seven games in my sophomore season, I walked away from the Swift Current Broncos due to personal reasons. Nobody knew I had been sexually abused at the age of five. I did everything to hide it from everybody, but I just couldn't take it. Drugs and alcohol now took over my life. I did return to the Swift Current Broncos as a 19-year-old, but things were never the same. I was eventually traded to the Kelowna Rockets in my final year of junior where I got to play on a line with the Dallas Stars captain, Jamie Benn, and one of my best friends, the extremely talented Colin Long. It was by far my best season ever, and I even signed with the Tampa Bay Lightning's organization. A dream come true, right? That's when everything went wrong. First it was the cocaine, then came the Oxycontin, and that led me into a 12-year journey into the deepest pits of hell. Within two years, I had now made the switch to heroin, fentanyl, and everything in between, and I was now an intravenous drug user. Multiple suicide attempts and over five trips to the psych ward, I was a shadow of who I once was. By 2014, I was homeless on Hastings in Vancouver, the worst street in North America. By 2015, I was a wanted criminal, making the Crime Stopper headlines more than once. After spending three years in jail, I had completely given up. With nowhere to turn and nowhere to go, I finally started to get honest. I took a chance and made some major changes. This is my story. 911, I overdosed over 10 times. I'm one of the lucky ones. And for that, I will always be grateful. This is for all the men and women we've lost. Matthew Lazinski, Mitch Fadden, this one's for you. My name's Brady Liebold, and I've been to hell and back. This is the road to recovery. What is going on, everybody? Welcome. Hockey to Hell and Back, episode number 103. Of course, I'm Brady Leibold, coming at you guys live from beautiful Muskoka, Ontario. I'm back in Muskoka after a, just a fantastic weekend. Just want to quickly talk about the Probert ride, going down, paying tribute to Big Bob, and uh, just getting to see all those bikes. O over 1,500 Harleys uh, took place this year, raising money for mental health. I'll throw up a couple pictures. There's me and Danny Probert, uh, Jack, Tierney. Uh, Mark Bell, former NHLer, uh, Ryan Vandenbush, who's been on the show, was down there. Uh, just a, 
amazing weekend. Thank you to Susan Cook, who joined me. Thank you to the Probert family, who took care of everything for us. It was honestly a dream come true, and it was just a privilege and an honor to be down there. I love you guys. Thank you for having us. Uh, it was something that I'll never, ever forget. Uh, I'm going to talk lots after we uh, we have our guests on the show. It's really what everyone's here for. It's why I'm here. I'm super excited about it. I'm like kind of geeking out over it, to be honest. Um, but before I do that, I just want to uh, just you know, remind people that 41 years ago today, Terry Fox uh, lost his battle with cancer uh, during his Marathon of Hope across Canada. I'm originally from Port Coquitlam, his hometown, and, uh, you know, it was always a point of pride being from Port Coquitlam, the hometown of Terry Fox, the greatest Canadian, the greatest leader this country has ever seen, um, you know, and his legacy has continued on and they've raised millions and millions of dollars for cancer research and uh you know 41 years ago today we lost the greatest canadian of all time and i just wanted to uh pay a little tribute to terry fox uh we'll be right back in a minute a quick message from regan bartell and the great people at team issued hi there it's regan bartell the play-by-play voice of the Kelowna rockets brady leovold's biggest fan Team Issued is connecting all walks of life. Team Issued does this by recreating that special feeling of being a part of something bigger. A community for all striving towards the same goal. Teamissued.ca. Promo code TOEDRAG15 for 15% off. All right, let's do it. Uh, Before I bring in Tony Hoffman, uh, you know, this is something that is so close to my heart. And this is a guy that I look up to so much. Uh, When I think about kind of the stuff that I've been doing the last two years um, and understanding um, just the whole scope of it. And, you know, when I came across a video of Tony Hoffman, probably eight, nine months ago now, a goal cast video, I went down the rabbit hole of Tony Hoffman and, uh, did what I could to reach out to him. And I think we scheduled this podcast a couple months back. That's how busy this guy is. He's on the road talking uh, his story through addiction and prison and making it to the Olympics. I don't want to talk any more about it. Let's get it from the man himself. So without further ado, here he is, Tony Hoffman. Thanks for having me, John. Appreciate it. I'm glad we got to make this work. Man. Oh, man, I'm so excited, dude. I'm such a fan of yours. And I know you said you're just a normal guy, and I totally understand that. But, dude, you're a hero, man. You're a hero in what you've done and what you've been able to accomplish, and not just for yourself, but for maybe more importantly for other people, man. You've given so many people hope, and I'm one of them, so thank you for being here. Um, You know, I I don't know how much – I know you tell your story on a regular basis. Uh, I'm going to give you the – kind of the reins here and you can kind of just uh tell us whatever you want to or don't want to but tell us uh you know tell me a little bit more about tony hoffman and your upbringing and kind of your story just to give people a little bit of perspective yeah so i grew up in a in a very uh, quote-unquote normal environment um i wasn't around gangs violence uh no helicopters shooting at night um, my parents weren't uh, addicted to drugs themselves well my dad was uh, a binge alcoholic um, it wasn't something that I watched him do on a daily basis. My family was uh, an upper middle class family that moved to a part of California for work and then moved to a part of the city that they moved to for work that would put me and my brother in a position to be a part of Clovis Unified, which at the time was one of the top public schools in the United States. And so when you think about like the foundations of my life, um, it, it was pretty ideal, right? Like I, I had all of the opportunities I had. Um, 
pretty much everything that a person would need or thinks they would need to be in a position of uh, status or power or somebody that has an abundance of, of wealth coming in, whether it's financial or opportunities. Um, but I was also somebody that struggled a lot with mental health, um, anxiety and depression. Um, I had a lot of suicidal ideations starting when I was in middle school. And a lot of that confusion and struggle that I was having with my mental health really kind of stemmed around my experience that I was having with my father. My parents were both workaholics and in their workaholicism, uh, they were absent for a lot of me and my brother's lives growing up. And it's not that they didn't get sports equipment for us. It's not that they didn't uh, put us in sports leagues and, and, and get us involved in things. It was just that they weren't there when we were involved in things. And for myself, uh, I was a more emotional person than my brother was. Mm -hmm. And because of that, I thought more about things, right? I thought more about my feelings. My feelings meant more to me. And not that feelings didn't mean anything to my brother. I just think that he was processing these experiences in a totally different way where I was processing them in a very self-destructive way. And so yeah. my, my, my early childhood was kind of ideal outside of those two components. Well, and I know, and like, it sounds ideal, but those two components can have a major effect on somebody's, like you talk about mental health and, and then going from there. I, I watched a lot of your videos, as many as, as I could find, and I've watched them several times. So I know a, a, a bit about your story, at least of what you've shared, right? And I feel like you're one of the most authentic people that I've ever seen speak. And that's why I have so much respect for you. And obviously you and I have a, we went down a very similar path. So when you speak, it's like I'm hearing similar similar things to my story. So I'm like, wow, you know, and it made yeah. just made, makes me feel like, uh, uh, you know, I'm not alone in this either. And there's so many people out there that don't have a voice and you're giving people those voice, those voices. But, you know, you talk about your upbringing and I know you were a tremendous athlete, like a gifted athlete at, at basically everything you touch. You were just one yeah. of those guys. Right. Uh, but I heard you say that, you know, you had this gift, but you didn't really want to be a champion at the time. You just kind of wanted to be a normal guy. But here you were. Uh, you, you didn't use drugs. Tell me a little bit about that and, and the way your mindset was leading up to the very first time you, you took a drug. Yeah. I, you know, I didn't realize when I was younger that my gift was sports. Um, I knew I was good at them, but when I say gift, I mean, as in I was designed to do this so it would help with this. Yeah. What I was missing in between these two points was this intersection of perspective. Right. So I had the gift and it was supposed to help with my struggles. But what I was missing was this perspective that was going to connect these two pieces and the healing process start. Right. So it was like I had this exceptional gift. Everybody kept telling me how great I was. I didn't feel great. I felt like something was broken in me. I felt like something was missing. It didn't matter if I was on the cover of a magazine. It didn't matter if Fox was sending me two thousand dollars worth of products. Something inside of me just felt like it was missing. So when people would put me on this pedestal, I would quickly want off. Don't put me here. I don't want to be on this because I don't want the responsibility that seems to come with these expectations you have for me because inside me, I feel like I'm not going to be able to meet your expectations of what a hero is, mm. right? Like when you say you're a hero to me in today's world, I can hear that and think, man, I've really worked hard to yeah. be a hero. And, and, and to on the other side of the screen, be able to say, bro, if you looked up to me and copied everything that I did, you will be great in your own ways and everything about you will be amazing. 
And it doesn't mean that I'm perfect, right? It just means that the work I've done today to get to where I'm at is deserving of being called a hero by somebody, right? And I think people had that about my sports gift, right? The idolization, the inspiration that my gift brought them. But I didn't have this piece that allowed me to see, hey, look, I have this platform because of this gift in which I can share to other individuals what my struggles look like, what my what my dark closet looks like, right? What the hallway with very dim light looks like. Because people look at my life and they might think, oh man, this guy's shining bright, right? No problems, got everything he could ever want. When in reality is I got dark hallways like everybody else, right? Um, but if I was able to have that perspective between those connecting points, then I believe that my gift would have flourished. But because I hated my gift because of the attention, I was constantly trying to figure out how I could be normal. Like, how do I just be somebody that people don't look up to? How do I just be somebody that can go to the parties and people aren't wanting to talk to maybe all the time or these things that I perceived that was normal. And the biggest part of being normal to me was, was not having the emotional disruption, right? Was not having the dark hallways and the closets filled with this stuff. Um, some of that stuff, uh, may not have been what you mentioned in the beginning of your story that happened to you at five years old, but my perspective about what my stuff looked like was still self-destructive. It was shaming and, and I felt guilty for these things, right? And so the only thing I had that was keeping me upright was sports. It was the weirdest dynamic, bro. I know the one. <laughs> I, I'm great at sports. I don't want to fucking play sports, bro. Yeah. But if I don't play sports... I self-destruct, right? And so it's like, I'm doing this stuff because I'm good at it. No other reason, because the perspective is missing that connects the dots. Uh, I'm on the cover of a magazine at 18 years old, um, ranked number one in the country. Had yeah, just, just, I, I kind of missed that. Just sorry to cut you off, just for people watching or, or listening after, you were ranked the number one BMX racer in the country uh, at 18, right? In points, yeah. So I was leading the points race into the finals. In fact, all I had to do in November of 2002 was show up to the finals and make the gate, the, the final eight, and I could have rolled out of the gate and I still would have got the title. So it was like I had all my wins going in. I was leading the 19 to 27 ex, eight, uh, expert age group. It was all set in stone. I didn't even go. I didn't go because I took this job opportunity. But before I took the job opportunity to be in computer networking, um, I started you know, going to parties when I knew I was going to get this job. And after I graduated, I was going to leave. So uh, I started smoking weed, you know, and, and weed wasn't something that made me feel like my problems went away. Mm. It was just something to do that made me feel like I'm not completely disconnected from the people that I was right. with. Because starting when I was 12, I started to feel like something was wrong. With me, yeah. Right. People don't understand me. I'm misunderstood. Um, I often get blamed for things I didn't do. And so I started to isolate away from people, from feeling like nobody got me and understood me. And then like there came this point where when I put my gift away, I started going to parties and I gave in to kind of what was going on around to kind of seal the loneliness and, and create some adhesiveness between me and the peers that I was around. 
Yeah. And that's, uh, you know, I hear that story. It, it happens quite often when I talk to people uh, that are either in addiction or in recovery. Uh, when you talk about where, where did you start and, and what does that look like? How did that feel for you? Because I heard you talk about how just that you were never going to do drugs, right? I was the same way, right? Like, and I also heard you say, you know, like high school graduation, you know, there's Hoff, you don't got to worry about him. He's going to be successful. He's going to be good. Look at all the stuff he's got going on. Um, but underneath, nobody really knew what the hell was really going on, right? And, and you end up going down this, this really dark path. Uh, tell me the first experience you had maybe with like hard drugs. Um, and because I know that you got into the opiates and me and you had a very similar experience with that. But prior leading up to that, did you abuse any other drugs like leading up to those those pills? Sure. Yeah, yeah. I, I got into cocaine really big after weed. It went like weed to cocaine. And I think it went coca weed to cocaine because I started selling weed. And the idea behind selling weed was financially supporting myself. Um, cause I wasn't a person that wanted to work a nine to five. I had no desire to go be, uh, somebody else's employee. And there was also that entitlement. So for some reason I found selling drugs as, uh, my niche and I started selling weed. And then I got introduced to cocaine by a guy that I was hanging out with. And, uh, I started selling cocaine to my friends mm. and, um, you know, I started moving through cocaine, like a lot of a lot of cocaine, right? And I started making a lot of money, uh, sometimes to, you know, two, three thousand dollars in a night. And uh, while I'm doing that, you know, I'm snorting a quarter ounce of cocaine a day, you know, just getting lit. And uh, cocaine was never my drug. Like yeah. it made me anxious, it made me paranoid. I didn't like not being able to sleep because sleep was the first coping skill I had for my depression and my anxiety. So if I was asleep, I didn't have the struggles that I really had. Um, and so cocaine just kind of like exacerbated all of my struggles. And uh, so I got really heavily into cocaine, wasn't sleeping much, was always up. And it was when I found Oxycontin um, that things kind of really changed and turned a corner for me. Because while I was using some of these drugs, those drugs never felt like they were the answer, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I know. I know exactly that feeling. And um you know, I, I always talk about this on this podcast because I, I always knew like, okay, painkillers, physical painkillers. I had, I had no idea the amount of uh, painkilling it was going to do for my emotional pain that I've been carrying around my entire life. And it was the answer. And I think it was much the same for you. I, I knew I was beat right away. Yeah. I instantly, um, I remember one of the first few times I took it. Um, and this is a story I never really have, have told before, but, um, I went to the, I took one of my childhood friends, sister to the mall. She didn't have a driver's license this, this time. I was very close with their family and they asked if I could um, take her, her younger sister and her friend to the mall. They needed to go shopping for something. And I remember I popped an Oxycontin before I went to this uh, to pick them up and take them to the mall. And I remember thinking to myself while I was walking through the mall, how much better of a person I felt like. Mm -hmm. Right. Like I was happy. Um, I was content. I was worry free. I didn't have anxiety. I felt like everything in that moment was exactly the way I've always wanted it to be. And uh, my brain just really loved that idea that um, right now you're safe. Right now you're comfortable. And right now you're confident. Right. It was something that I don't think I'd ever felt before. A lot of people are like, Hoff, you're so confident. You're so confident. You do this and you do that. And they don't realize, you know, there's there's a certain innate feature of me that um, allows me to start things. 
But while I'm doing things, I may not be the person you actually perceive that I am, right? There's just this, I'm not going to lose behind me starting stuff. Because I, 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 people, I think a great question to ask people is, do you like winning or do you hate losing? Mm. I don't love winning. I hate losing, right? And so I've never felt this idea that I'm, I'm comfortable, I'm safe, and I'm confident all at once. Oxycontin was the one that gave me all three of those um, feelings. And that was really what made me want to drive harder towards that drug. It was never um, in my mind, this is going to take control of my life. Because why would something that feels so good take over your life? Yeah. You know, you, you just feel so good. It seems to bring so much benefit into your life. There's no way that this is going to make me homeless, make me commit crimes, hurt other people, uh, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I was just looking to escape from myself and it took many years of sobriety and work on myself to go back and look at that situation and see exactly what I was doing. And it was to try to escape myself. Yeah. And there's a, there's a lot that goes in there and I kind of want to get into your time. You, you talk about in, in one of your videos, multiple about just the hard times. People ask me to all the time, what was jail like? What was it like? Was it hard? Was it this? And I, and I had actually, a, as far as I'm concerned, as much of a positive experience you could ever have in jail um, based, I think because I played hockey, maybe you had s similar things because you were this pro BMX or maybe you got a little uh, treated a little differently. I'm not sure, but you talk about the hard times being homeless, you know, being on the street. Yeah. Uh, you know, I spent uh, close to a year down on Hastings in Vancouver and, you know, when you talk about that, the way that you're able to convey that, shit, man, I was in tears just like an hour ago watching it again and my hair standing up on my arm. Um, you never think you're going to end up in that spot, right? No. Uh, and, I, and you know, you were saying that and I was just thinking more about it, right? Like just digging for more introspect. And it's like I told my girl, I don't know, six, seven months ago. I said, I feel like every person in the world should be homeless for 30 days. Mm. Um, the reason for that was more the physical realm, right? Is to learn what wants and needs are and really understand what survival looks like. But if a person went into being homeless and it was voluntary, right? To experience being without many of us that are in a good place wouldn't experience what I experienced as a homeless person, right? The physicality wasn't the bottom, the lack of shelter, um, the lack of provision for food, um, the lack of provision for my addiction, um, wasn't actually what made being homeless so hard. It was that while I had my gift when I was younger and I needed the, the, the middle piece, the perspective, my perspective by the time the addiction had beat me to the point I was homeless was so far on the opposite spectrum of what a human being needs to thrive that I was beyond miserable, right? Like you don't wake up in that situation and feel hope. You don't wake up in that situation and feel like you can trust people. You don't wake up in that situation and feel like today's going to be the best day of my life or today is going to be the day that everything changes in my life, right? You wake up and by that point, your thought process, the, the tunnel is, is it's so narrow, right? I got to get this 
and this, that's it. Yeah. You know, and then once you get that, you have this moment where like your, your vision does this, right? And, and, and the only thing that fits through that tunnel is something to drink, something to eat, and maybe connecting with other people. If you're like me, yeah. you know, I shot dope by myself in hotel rooms. I shot dope behind trash cans and laundry mats, um, and, and, you know, by myself, miserable, right? And so, you know, when I talk about the, 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 the desperation of me being homeless, it was really that my perspective and my talk about to myself about who I am and what I'm capable of doing in the world was so far on the opposite spectrum of thriving and um, loving self that it was just uh, a nightmare, you know? And then it was like you run into more people that just make it worse and then you, do, you, you make decisions for the addiction that just make things worse. And it's just like a cycle that just never stops. Um, and that's why I tell people prison wasn't the bottom for me. You know, it, it's not that it wasn't tough, but I was rebuilding my mental state by that time. I was rebuilding my spiritual person by the time I got to prison, right? Or when I get to prison. Before that, it's absolute, utter self-destruction. I I love the... I love the 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 story in, in prison. I, I really want to hear more about it because you end up getting sentenced to like four and a half years, right? Um, and and end up in, in prison. Uh, and it's probably what your second strike. Did you get a second strike for that? I wanted to ask you that. Right. No, you did, no, you didn't get a strike for that because you already had one. I know. One. I had one, but the violation wasn't a, a strikeable offense. Okay, so but still, you're you're in there for a number of years, and you're removed from BMX for what six, seven years at this time, or was it? I guess five, five years. Yeah, five. And tell tell people uh, your mindset and and kind of how that came about in prison with uh, you know the quote on the wall and all that. I just I'm fascinated by this man. Uh, so I, I had a spiritual experience before. It's really important for me to, to explain that. On January 21st, 2007, the day I broke into a house that was up for rent, I was arrested the next day. But on January 21st, 2007, uh, I went to a church for one of the first times in my life. And uh, a pastor who laid his hands on me, told me God had favored me my whole life and everything that I had done, and that I didn't have to worry anymore. He was going to remove me from my addiction. Um, this happened after I was told a year prior to this from a friend that God gave him a vision and I was in this vision. I was going to get three significant chances. If I didn't stop doing what I was doing before these chances took place, I was going to go to prison, he said. Well, two months before I went to this church, I was pulled over three times in four days. The first two times I was pulled out of the car and searched because I was on felony probation. Um, I hit a needle between my butt cheeks the first time. The second time I hit 64 Oxycontins uh, rolled up in a cigarette cellophane lit closed between my ass cheeks so they couldn't find it when they searched me. And yeah. the third time I was pulled over in a car that had fake tags, no registration in five years. Driver didn't have a license, no insurance. We both had drugs on us. And uh, the cop never asked if anybody was on pro or probation and told us to drive the car home to the person we borrowed it from. Wow. Yeah. Like I've told this and I tell the story, I've told this in front of law enforcement conferences and they tell me I'm full of shit. And I'm like, bro, this happened exactly that way. Yeah. Like nobody was taken out of the car. Nobody was questioned like legit, bro. We were pulled over right in front of the university of all things. 
Like this car was hot as all ever. <laughs> they they let us go, and I remember thinking One significant chance right there, right? Three. I remember telling my girlfriend at the time that was the three chances that Adam was talking about. And uh, two weeks or two months later, I was invited to a church, and I went to that church, and I don't know something about that experience just made me break down. I believe, I believe, I believe this is real. This is real. This is real is what I told myself. And uh, I thought a miracle had taken place where I was going to be removed from withdrawals um, oh. and I was gonna be able to get my life back. Right. Like I just wanted to be able to stop and not have to experience the, the withdrawal. Right. Because I felt like if there was no withdrawal and craving, I could do this. And uh, I just there was no thing. That's a perfect world, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. There are a lot of people that are listening to me right now that have been through this would be like, oh, yeah, we would have had it a long time ago if that was the case. Um, but it wasn't the case. And when I was arrested the following day, I remember sitting in the back of the car and thinking to myself that God was going to remove me from my addiction and that I was going to get three significant chances. And if I didn't stop doing what I was doing, I was going to go to prison. And I remember thinking to myself in that moment for the first time, let me put it to you this way. In that moment, for the first time in my life, there was A and C and all of a sudden I had B, right? I now had this perspective that could connect these two dots and make sense of things. Um, I didn't know how to use this perspective I didn't know uh, how I was going to grow this perspective or how I was going to use this perspective. The only thing I knew in that moment was everything happens for a reason. My job was to figure out why. So when I went to jail, 30 days later, I get sentenced to prison. I'm at Wasco State Prison, D yard, cell 254. I got the top bunk. I lay down after I make my bed. I look up in the ceiling. And I'm no longer moving through life ignorantly, right? Like I feel like at this point, this experience that I had, this willingness to open up my heart and mind to different ways of seeing life allowed me to start viewing life, everything around me, right? As this gigantic symphony. And while I was moving through this orchestrated symphony, it was my job to see when things were happening around me that were trying to direct me. Right. So when I lay down on my bunk and I'm looking up in the ceiling, I started reading these quotes that somebody had written in my pencil. <laughs> and uh, the one you're talking about said, be careful what you think. Your thoughts become your words. Be careful what you say. Your words become your actions. Be careful what you do. Your, uh, your actions become your habits. Be careful what you make a habit because your habits become your character and your character becomes your destiny. And because I now had the, the, the perspective point to connect the dots, I was able to look at this quote and it was no longer those stupid quotes that we saw in school growing up, right? Like your teacher had the stuff about attitude, about hard work, and the principal had that stuff. And you're like, this is the silliest shit you've ever seen. Like, what does it mean? Like now when I go to schools and places and I see this stuff, it's funny. I always stop and I read them and I go, I'll be damned. <laughs> I'll be damned if I just would have had what I have now, this intersecting point that connected me to these things would have propelled my life so far early on. Right. 
And so I'm looking at this quote and I'm, and, I, and I'm looking at this quote and then I'm putting it in like a mirror, right? I can think one of the hardest things for human beings to do, me in, included at times, you can ask my girlfriend, putting the mirror in front of your face is extremely difficult to do because when you put the mirror in front of your face, you have to look at what's there. So instead of reading this quote and then just continuing on my day, I read this quote and I put the mirror against it. And I start thinking about what this quote means to me, right? Where has my thinking been, my speaking been, my doing been? What are my habits? Because when I started thinking about it, it's like, oh, shit. I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be right now, right? Like, this isn't some world that hates me. This isn't some God that's out to get me. This isn't some society that picked on me, the coaches that were always after me, my parents that didn't do right by me. When I put this mirror up against this quote and I put it towards me, everything about this quote says, this is on you, bro. And I felt like, okay, if this is on me, then I can change this whole outcome. Like everything about this experience that I'm in right now changes as long as I keep the mirror right in front of me, right? Like, I'm not going to put the mirror on you, bro. Yeah. That's your fucking job. You know, if yeah. you get into the program, what do we say? We don't take other people's inventory. That's right. Right. Because we have our own inventories to take. And so I started taking my own inventory and I started realizing, man, I don't like what I see. So then I had this, this intersecting point that I now was missing. And it was like, okay, how do I grow this? The only way that you can grow it is by changing the content of your life. And for me, I had a Bible. The word of God was the way that I could change the content I consumed, the message behind the content that I was consuming to take away the, the, the desperation of the human being that was homeless strung out on drugs, right? The rebuilding of my spiritual being had to take place. The physical part's easy, bro. Yeah. That's for anybody. I don't care if you're in a fucking wheelchair, right? Like if you're in a wheelchair, you can go outside and wheel that thing, bro. You know, there's speakers that have lost all their limbs and they still find ways to get out. You know, there was a girl named Tara that was a really good mountain biker when I was a young kid. I can't think of her last name right now. Um, devastated, crashed on a mountain bike, ended up in a wheelchair. And watching her go through um, the grief of losing her ability to walk and be normal and being stuck, stuck in this wheelchair. And then at some point, there was this shift where she now began to see that this is her life. And it was her responsibility to now live this life that she has to its fullest potential. So what did she do? She started racing in these wheelchair bikes. Wow. Right. It was like we all have the ability to work on our physical being. I feel like that's the easy part. The hard part was sitting down, putting the mirror in front of my face and saying, don't move it. You're not allowed to let the fire stop right? The fire is what refines you. The pressure is what creates you. And if you can hold it here longer than everybody else, then you'll be brighter. You'll be shinier. You'll be more effective and you'll have a much greater perspective that connects those A to C points.
So that's what I did. I just started consuming content that was positive, consuming content that gave me faith, consuming content and putting myself around people, places, and things that communicated in a very similar way. And I started to realize if you make me feel like the person I used to be, I don't want anything to do with you. Get out of my life because I gave into people like that for many years, right? I gave into systems like that. I gave into people and friends and, 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 and competitors that, that had opinions about me. And when I gave into those opinions, I became this miserable person who thought I was going to be normal. Right. And so then I started using all of these feelings, good and bad, to just be like my coach. And they were coaching me the whole time. Get away from this place. Work through this. Don't give up. You know, this is something you always walked away from when you were younger. Put that mirror in front of your face. Keep it there. Remember when you were a kid and you walked away from practice because you felt uncomfortable? Now you're going to feel uncomfortable. You're going to want to quit today. You're going to want to tell the coach to fuck off. And you're going to want to be the old person, but you're going to not. You're going to go home. You're going to lay down and you're going to tell yourself you can't win them all. And tomorrow when you show up, you're going to be better than you were yesterday and you're going to win that one, you know, but sometimes I had to tell myself, man, you're not going to win them all for a year, two years. Um, but I felt like prison, the entire experience in prison was really about me taking that person of desperation, no hope, and turning it into a person that was filled with hope, an overflowing cup of hope, right? Like I got so much hope, bro, I can give you plenty of it and still feel like I might have too much. I love that. I yeah. love it, man. Hope is, hope is honestly everything, right? Especially coming out of that desperate situation. But, you know, I was in, a, in the same situation and, you know, I did a lot of the same stuff. And I, I did myself turn to the Bible in, and seeing the chaplain on a regular basis while I was in there. And it, it honestly really helped change my perspective. But at no time while I was in there was I thinking like, yeah, I can get my life back. Yeah, I'm going to go accomplish this. Yeah, I'm going to, you know, go to the Olympics. Like none of that. So tell, tell me, tell me a little bit about the decision being like, yeah, you know what? I'm going to get back on a bike and I'm, you know, I'm going to race and I'm going to go to the Olympics. You didn't have any idea what that looked like. But not only that, how did, how was the response? Because I heard you know, guards were coming up to your mom and be like, yo, who's telling, who's telling Tony that he's not going to the Olympics while you're in jail? Cause you're like fully telling people that, Hey, I'm doing this and people are making fun of you. You're in jail prison. And you're like, yeah, you're, you decided, tell me like that sounds to any normal person, like absolutely ludicrous to be honest. Right. Like I have to say, but you did it. And, and I, I just am so I just admire you so much, man. Like, because I've been in that situation and there was no hope and there was no, I was trying, but I couldn't even think past. Like, yeah, I was just like, this is my life forever and whatever. Right. Yeah. So I'm really yeah. just taken aback by this. And I, and I, and I, when you say that, and then when you say in the beginning, like, you're a hero to me, right? That's really what I'm connecting. You know what I mean? Like, I, th 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 this story is not made up. <laughs> I really was in prison and I really told people I'm going to the Olympics and I really did go to the Olympics, not as an athlete, I made it as a coach, but I tell people, if you think getting there as a coach is easy, go find an athlete that trusts you enough to take them to the Olympics and then find the one that can actually make it to the Olympics, right? Like I did that and really it came down to faith. Mm -hmm. It was faith, man. 
it was something that I couldn't see, right? I couldn't see it. I couldn't touch it, but I could feel it. And it wasn't, it wasn't like I could feel this. It was something in, deep inside of me, right? It was, it, it was something when I was a little kid that said, um, you're going to do big things, right? I talked about this in my book. There was this moment when I was like in fourth grade, I was walking to the water fountain. And I remember this overwhelming feeling. I, I'm getting goosebumps. This is, I swear to God, this is the truth. I'm walking to the water fountain and I feel this overwhelming surge of you're supposed to do something really big. And I remember telling myself, I don't want to do it. Leave me alone. Hmm. Right? Like, I don't want what you have for me. Give it to somebody else. When I got to prison, I had that connecting point, that perspective that allowed me to say, wait a minute. Maybe I'm supposed to do something big. Maybe this is, maybe my gift isn't about me. Maybe, maybe racing BMX and going to the Olympics isn't about me. Maybe starting a nonprofit organization isn't about me. Maybe becoming a speaker isn't about me. Maybe this is about you, right? And so then it was like, okay, I'm not doing this for me. And if I don't do this, then I'm not here. Right? Like if I didn't do this, I wouldn't be here right now. And if I wasn't here right now, the person that's listening to this or the person that's going to listen to this won't ever hear me, right? And when I felt this, there was a sense of urgency, right? Like I have to do this and I have to do this now. And then there was this raise of intention, right? I can't just do the work. I have to do the work to the highest degree of my ability possible. And I wasn't able to work hard within myself I was able to work hard within this concept of faith and responsibility to you, right? And so then it was like, if I had faith and a responsibility to others, when things didn't go the way I wanted them to go, I had to keep going because I can't, I'm not done. I'm not done. I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing yet, right? I'm not there yet. Like I have to get there because if I don't, I can't do this. And so really it was just, Something inside of me that said, you're supposed to be doing something big. The faith that came through my spiritual experience that said you can. And the accountability uh, or the responsibility that I had to others that made me feel like I have to. It's, uh, it's all just mind-blowing to me I, because, you know, I, I don't know, man. I'm just... I, like I said, I admire you so much and there's so much that I want to like talk about. You talk about getting to the Olympics, right? Not as an athlete, but as a coach, I would sit here and argue that that's like you said, like that's a greater accomplishment, especially coming from where you came from. Like who the hell is going to trust a guy come out of prison, right? Or a guy that's this, this criminal, like to the society. Um, and then, and, and you get the, some of the best athletes because they trust you because you're a phenomenal coach and then you get to go to the Olympics. Like I would argue that that's a great, way greater accomplishment than if you would have made it as a, as an athlete. And by the way, uh, I was mocked, ridiculed, hated on, uh, about all of the coaching stuff that I was learning and applying. These were things that were scientifically being used in other sports that, uh, weren't such a baby sport. In other words, BMX really was founded in the eighties. So, 
by you know 2008, it's in the Olympics. It's still a very new sport and very old school in the way that it thought about training. And I had some very cool coaches that taught me how to use technology in coaching. And uh, I was ridiculed and made fun of. And a lot of big athletes didn't want to work with me because they knew working with me, even though they had that curiosity that it looks like he knows what he's doing and he's onto something really good, they themselves didn't want the scrutiny that would come with, you're working with Hoff? You actually believe that guy? You think that shit works? It's funny because now when I see all these athletes these years later, they're all doing the stuff that I was saying we needed to be doing back before it was a cool thing to do, right? Power meters in training, timing systems in training, power meters in the gym, measuring all of the data, coming up with data that helps you make training decisions. These were all things that I started developing um, as a person who just came out of prison. So not only is it crazy to think you can trust a guy that just got out of prison was strung on drugs, but how the hell does he know how any of this stuff works, right? Um, so I just coach people for free. Ah, uh, I I love it. I'm back coaching hockey like kids again too, like on the ice, and um, just fairly recently. And man, I, I, like that's why I mean like when I say you know you accomplishing that as a coach, like to me now, especially now that I'm coaching and I just understand that. I mean, and you think about, I mean, you, you get like one athlete per like BMX is a single person sport. Right. So, I mean, the, just the scope of that to, to achieve that is remarkable. I want to let you know too, I did some BMX racing as a kid, uh, for a couple of years, man. I was, uh, I think I thought I was better than I was, uh, just doing some regional stuff. I'll tell you a quick, funny story, man. I've never told this on here. I remember I had this, uh, first I wanted to do freestyle, right? So my dad got me this bike, had like a gyro on it and stuff. I, I was so bad at freestyle. So I get yeah. into the racing, but the, I remember the very first race I had to do, I used my freestyle bike and I wiped, I was like eight or nine, dude. I wiped out so bad. I had this big old helmet. It was like a motorcycle helmet that was like way too big, like bobble heddling around and just <laughs> kept me over in the corner. And I just yeah. remember I came off that track. I was just a little shit, man. I had a lot of anger issues and entitlement like that too. And I just yeah. pick up my bike, throw it, leave it, like never coming back. Right. But I did end up going back, but I was always on my bike too. And that's, you know, my, never was great at it, but always had so much respect for, for the sport. And, um, Man, uh, I don't know, man. Like, I, I, I just want to say again, like you, I want people to understand, uh, you know, the word hero. And I, I was on a podcast earlier today and we talked about this, the word hero. And so, so often, you know, you look to people, at least this, the guy on the podcast was talking about, like, you know, we'll just talk about hockey for a second, like hockey superstars, like, oh, that's a hero because what they're accomplishing in their particular sport or whatever. And we broke it down and, and like that, you know, and, and taking away nothing from professional athletes. I have a lot of respect for all of them, but there's so much more to it and your bravery and your strength uh, to come out and, and just take all of this on. And, and, you know, 2012 is when you picked up the microphone and trying to get an agent, right? This is 20. I mean, it's still to this day, mental health is a lot easier to talk about, but addiction has a huge stigma and it's 2022. Yeah, yeah. We're, talking, we're talking 10 years ago. Tell me, the response and what it was like trying to uh, to get out there and, and what people said and, and then let people know where where you're at today because you are a busy busy man and fuck those people yeah and, and they're still around um, it's funny because I know I'm not in front of the crowds I belong in because of my past right um, you get some guys that have the prison stories and they find themselves in the crowds I believe I should be in front of too um, but their story doesn't go. <laughs> 
we're mindos, right? Yeah. Like we go dark, yeah. we go ugly and we go stigma, right? There's so many belief systems around why I was the way I was, who I am as a result of what I did versus, yeah, I stole some money, right? Yeah. I stole some money, went to federal prison. And that's not to take away anybody that's gone through that. I'm just saying that their stigma is very high when it comes to speakers who have my background. And so when I knew I wanted to speak, um, I found myself in positions where I would get at the table with the selection committees, but it was always, we're going another direction. We're going another direction. And they all use that same PC term. We don't like you. We like somebody else, but they just say, we're going another direction. Um, I got to this place where I was very popular locally. And I started to realize, I think I could do this. This could be, my mother said, you know, maybe you can do this as a career. I looked it up. Speakers get paid very well, especially yeah. the good ones. Maybe you need to try to pursue this. And so I started taking money that I had saved from um, coaching, uh, doing clinics, not coaching like the one that took me to the Olympics, but doing local clinics and clinics around the country and my racing. And I started putting it into videographers and photographers. And uh, at this time, I was speaking for free. I spoke for free for about four years before I was ever really paid anything uh, significant. Um, I got some agents in the end of 2013. They got me some jobs in 2014, four of them, I think. Um, I made $28,000. And I thought to myself, this is great. Like, I just made like a small living speaking. Like, I'm on it. You know, 2014 was great. 2015 is going to be even better. And I didn't speak one time in 2015. And I was confused. I was ready to quit. And my father said, son, you can't quit. Like, you're going to have to just figure this out. And uh, so what I did was figure it out. I figured out how to promote myself. I figured out how to get my story found by other people. And I figured out how to showcase my ability to captivate audiences and articulate the story of addiction and mental health in ways that other speakers weren't doing. And as a result, the phone started ringing. And when the phone started ringing, um, within a few years after 2016, you know, just this year, I, I, I mean, I was home on Saturdays, bro, starting March 1. Up until June, I was home on Saturdays. So like when you reached out to me, you know, I'm, I really try to engage on my social media. Like I'm for real, bro. This is my life work, right? But I'm like, bro, like I'm so busy. I need you to just message me in June or around June when I know that I can look at your message and think about what it is that you're asking me and come up with whether I can give you my time or not. Yeah. Right. And, uh, and you did that. And even when you did that, like I got your email, put it in my calendar and I thought I replied to you. And so when I messaged you today, you're like, bro, I didn't even know we were doing this. You didn't reply. And I was like, in my mind, I did. Yeah. Uh, but it's just because it's gotten so busy um, because the, the, my connecting of the mental health to why we do things the way we do things and why we try to change the way that we feel. Yeah. What I'm doing for youth and healthcare organizations and governments and communities, I truly believe no other speaker in the world is doing what I'm doing the way I'm doing it right now. And as a result, um, the, the need for, for my, my story is like never before. And I think next year 
will be even bigger than this year because I think so much of this year was still some of the, well, we're not too sure with the COVID thing. Um, whereas next year, people will will definitely be uh, ready to hit the ground running. I've been walking around all day telling people how next level you are. And in my opinion, you are the best at what you do in this field. Like for anybody watching or listening, it, go watch on YouTube, just search Tony Hoffman, uh, Ted Talk, or uh, the one you did for the Addiction Center, any of them, like the, the, the story uh, that's in this picture here, uh, Sanctified, like I'm telling you, like unbelievable. I've been speaking and sharing my story, uh, mostly to hockey teams and, and, and that a lot of on Zoom past this past winter of a couple things coming up. And I watch you and I'm like, Jeez, man, like this guy is like, I even have it written down right on the page, next level, like your next, <laughs> ne- and I'm not, I'm not just saying that because you're across from me. Like, yeah. I, I, I honestly, like what you're doing and the way that you convey your message and, and the, your level of speaking, man, like you're right. Nobody else that I've seen is doing it. Uh, when I saw the first video of you, I, I was like, who the fuck is this guy, right? Because I'm a hockey guy, you know. You know, I hadn't been on social media in a long time, and all of a sudden, I'm like, man, this guy is this guy is next level. Like, and, and you're right. Like, it, there's a greater need for it now than ever. And I think you know, you talk about perspective and understanding. Like, people, um, you know, I talk to so many people who just they never think, right? And I was the same way. I never thought I was going to go down this road. You never thought you were going to go down that road. Your parents never thought you were going to go down that road. My parents never thought I was going to go down that road, right? And so often that's the case. People wait till they're in crisis or their family members in crisis because this will never happen to my family, right? Right. right. Yeah. yeah. Life's a trip, bro. Before I let you go, I know you're, t- dude, I, you have no idea how much I appreciate this. This is honestly a dream come true for me. And, and I don't say that lightly. I, I talked to a lot of uh, people on this show, primarily hockey players. A lot of them I looked up to essentially idolized, like I talked about earlier and been able to have them on the show. And, um, but when I get to have like a real conversation about addiction and hear someone's story and they're just so uh, transparent and authentic, it's just the most refreshing thing sitting here. You make, made this show so easy man like so easy tell me before you go a little bit about the nonprofit, the treatment center uh the stuff that the work that you're doing uh the selfless work that you're doing for others man because uh wow yeah so i i started a nonprofit for kids originally we uh dissolved that in 2017 and uh from 2016 up to current my main focus was was just my speaking uh, at this point now, it's no longer just my speaking. Uh, just four weeks ago, PH Wellness opened up. You can check us out, phwellness.com. Uh, I started a residential treatment center with two other individuals who are also in recovery themselves and athletes themselves, different types of athletes, um, long distance athletes, Ironman athletes and ultra marathon athletes. Um, but we came together um, with gifts and said, we want to implement fitness, which one of my founders is a big gym owner. And we want to implement uh, a career center, which my other business partner owns a, a, like a billion dollar staffing agency. Cool. And so what we're doing is taking individuals struggling with addiction, stabilizing them, 
beginning the recovery process for them, just like any other treatment center would. But while we're doing that, we're implementing fitness and teaching them how to structure uh, uh, fitness into their life at whatever level they want. And then when they get to uh, exiting the, the residential side of treatment after they've been stabilized and they go into outpatient, uh, we offer them the career center as a bolt-on additive to our treatment center. While they're there, we psychologically assess them and we figure out kind of where they may be good at in career. And then we use that to direct them to say, we have these partnerships all over the United States. This is where we're capable of getting you work that kind of ties you into what you may be good at. Uh, we can train you for this company. And when the clinician deems that you're ready, we can actually place you into that career. That's wow. $21, $21 an hour, healthcare packages, uh, of retirement packages, which give the individual the foundation that they need to take that first step, right? You said when you were in jail, you didn't think your life was going to get any better. But if we came in and we took your hand and said, hey, life's going to get better. We have these opportunities that are in front of you. You would have been able to say, oh, shit. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. I see it. It may not be what I want, but I see it, right? It's an opportunity. And the best thing about that opportunity that we're bringing to these individuals is that if they have felonies on their records, we can still get them placed into these careers. Wow. And uh, this is something that I've been very passionate about, right? Is changing the status quo of what treatment looks like. Don't just stabilize an individual, show them their trauma and why they use, and then send them on their way with their bags and a big book and a meeting that they should go to, right? We need to do more than that. We have to provide a, a hand that helps them over the biggest hurdle in most individuals' cases of getting into uh, recovery, and that is finding work because they have records. In the United States, it's very difficult to get hired with a felony, even a misdemeanor or arrest. And so we're trying to make that hurdle non-existent, change the status quo. Uh, we got an 18-bed facility, detox to outpatient, and Riverside. Wow. Yes. I love to hear that. This is a major problem in Canada, man. This this disconnect between detox and treatment and the wait list up here. Like, for, for example, the very first time I called detox, it was like years, like 12 years ago. It was like I was freaking out. People were overdosing and I'm like, oh, I need help. I want to go back and play hockey. I just recently lost my hockey career. And they're like, yeah, we can get you in in six months, <laughs> like six months like dude i don't got i don't know if i got six minutes and so uh you know i've lost friends because of that that gap where oh you need to be seven days before you come to this treatment center you need to get detox well you can't get detox at home because the withdrawals are so bad and, and some people yeah. really need that help and then trying to find that detox sometimes i've had people and i've done it myself where you get to detox and then there's this lull in between treatment and then you have like a day or two and guess where i'm going on that day or two see ya and i don't even end up in treatment so thank you yeah. for that and yeah. that's a huge component it's a, it's a, it's still a battle, man. Like I, I you know, I don't want to get political, but we, uh, you know, you guys have socialized medicine yeah. in Canada and, and anybody that researches socialized medicine, uh, I had an athlete that was in the UK, which is also socialized medicine. Uh, even as an Olympic athlete, he had to wait four months for his knee surgery because it's get in line. Right. And so fortunately in the United States, uh, while we do have our setbacks with our healthcare system, we opened up a private system that allows us to take individuals um, who have insurance policies, cash pay. And once we get this thing off the ground as a private entity that's successful, we can then say, bro, get in our treatment center. 
we're going to sponsor you into our treatment center. That's right. Right. We're going to work with the community, with the judges, with the courts, with the safe housing places. And we're going to say we want to sponsor X amount of individuals per month. We can't do everybody for free, but we can do our own part um, at the degree in which we can. That keeps our business running, but also making sure that this is still about the person. Right. Um, Whereas the system that you're in is it's wait, wait. Everybody's got to get in line. I, I thought it was the oddest thing that you guys would go to detox. They would let you out of detox and you could be in limbo for two weeks before the treatment center was ready for you. I'm like, who's staying sober? Yeah, not me. Not anybody else I know. Like, it's, yeah. it's if, you, hey, if you could do that for two weeks in your weight, you don't need treatment, bro. That's the way I looked at it. And, and you know, I, man, I went to treatment more times than I care to talk about and detoxes. I did. Sometimes I leave, sometimes I make it. You know how it goes in, the, in that yeah. world. But there was always, it seemed to me that in the moments when I legitimately wanted or needed the help, and sometimes, you know, and I hate to say, oh, well, because I'm ready, people have to be ready. But in the life of addiction, sometimes that's how it happens, right? And it can be that split section between like somebody has that moment of clarity, being able to take them from that position to wherever it is, to a detox, to help, uh, like almost like as quickly as possible, because you lose that window so quickly. And, and then we end up losing lives because of it. Overdose deaths, it is insane up here in Canada. And I know it's no better down in the States. Like it's, well, I know it's, you're in the trenches in Ontario. Ontario and Vancouver, right? Are you in Vancouver and, or Ontario? I'm, I'm from Vancouver, but I live in Ontario now. And um, Those two areas, bro. Yeah. And Vancouver was hit really bad with fentanyl back, you know, started in 2013. And, you know, I, I tell people, and I've been saying this for a year and a half, I've personally had conversations with over a thousand people that have died of overdose just from being homeless in, on Hastings in Vancouver. Uh, you know, I got, I went to jail uh, for two years and I came out, I ended up doing a year out here too, but two years there. And I come out and there was like, 3,500 deaths in like a five block radius on Hastings in two years. And all these people that I was using with were now gone. And there's a big memorial with all their names. And they're like some of my friends. And like, I'm just like, you know, I realized how lucky I was the fact that I was arrested because this W18 came through and and killed off everybody, it seemed like. And, you know, I don't know, man, you and I are both very lucky uh, to be here. And the world is so lucky, man, to, to have you. And I feel lucky to, you know, not just have you on the show, but just to be able to, you know, be able to click on one of your videos or see one of your posts and follow along because you inspire me every single day to get to the level that I want to get to in my life. And you're just such a great example of that. I can't find a better one, at least for me personally. And I know there's a lot of people out there that, that probably feel the exact same way. Uh, and I'm excited to see where things will take you. And there's no doubt in my mind that uh, those people sitting at that table are going to be just, you know, sign here, sign here, Tony. You know, we need you just yeah. sign here and tell us the number right here. Like, because that's that's the reality of this. And people are, I feel, are, are finally starting to open their eyes. And you've been a huge conduit for that, man. There's no doubt about it. So thank you for what you do. And um, you know, maybe there's a time when we can connect down the road. And if you ever come to Canada for anything, you let <laughs> me know, especially if it's just, I'll be in the front row, dude, just like, yeah, yeah. let me hear it, man. I, I appreciate you. Uh, I know the world needs you just as much as it does need me. And uh, I started very small, uh, as you are doing. And I think you're doing the right thing by, by going where you're most effective first. And that's right in front of hockey players, right? 
and you can use that time to hone your craft, hone your message. And uh, if you feel a greater calling to branch out, you'll have that experience where you got to work with people that um, related to you most in the beginning where you felt like was home. So I think that what you're doing is great. I'm glad you reached out to me. I love taking these kind of opportunities because like I said, I'm just a normal person, man. And, and these types of things keep me going. It can't always be about me getting paid to be on the road, right? Mm -hmm. it, uh, there has to be this. And so you gave me an opportunity um, to be of service to others. So I appreciate you. Uh, if I ever come to Canada, I will definitely let you know. Yeah, and I'm, I'm telling you, I've started uh, an organization for hockey, primarily the hockey community, mental illness addiction, and that's what these pictures are behind me. And there's 76 hockey players that I know that have taken their own life or died of overdose. And the big thing that I do is, is remembering each and every one of them just to use hockey as the vehicle for change, right? Yeah. Uh, but but we're going to be doing events and stuff. And like, if we ever get to the position where we're going to bring in a speaker, you're at the top of my list, man. So uh, you'll be expected one day that if you're not coming to Canada on your own, you'll be getting a phone call from me and being like, Hey, we need you up here, man. Let's talk. Right. Right? Let's do it. Let's do it. All right. Man. Well, thank you so much uh, for your time, man. Oh, dude, I'm just so appreciative of you for your time, man. I'm, I'm speechless and that doesn't happen. Very here, bro. Take care of yourself. All right. Yeah, thanks, Hoff. Later, bro. All right, guys, that's Tony Hoffman. Holy shit. I got to take a minute here. What the hell just happened there? I can't, I still, you know, this was all like last minute. Uh, we He kind of touched on that. Um, I had it in my calendar, but I, I was like, this guy's super busy. Um, I don't want to bug him. And then all of a sudden I checked my messages like, hey, we on for tonight? And I'll be honest, I was gassed. I was on a podcast earlier. I went to the beach with the kids today in the sun. And I was like, yeah. And then he messaged me and I was like, there is no way in hell, <coughs> excuse me, that I'm going to miss this. I said, I don't care. You know, I got a couple teas, extra large teas from Tim Hortons. And I'm kind of getting off the caffeine. But I was like, I got I to gotta get going for this because this opportunity may only come once in a lifetime anyways um that's it we'll be back next monday night uh back when we booked this show we were still doing tuesday nights that's how long ago this show was booked um but thank you to tony hoffman i can't tell you guys enough do yourself a favor and and go youtube him follow him on social media if you like what I'm doing, you're going to love what this guy does. Um, there's like we talked about, like I said, there's nobody in the world that's doing it better than him. And I and I firmly like mean that I can't even tell you I, I geek out over it because I'm like, wow, wow, it's that powerful. Um, thank you to everyone watching live. Sorry, I didn't get to all the comments. Usually I do, but I was just like laser focused in. I'll throw some up at the end of the show if anybody wants to. Uh, I'll get to a couple. Thanks, Tony from Doug. Dean Smeal says, that's absolutely amazing. Good on you, Tony. Proud of you. That's awesome. No matter where you go, there you are, David Carlson, out there in Alberta. Brody says, welcome to the show, Tony, or goodbye to the show, Tony. We're a little late on that one. Stuart Smith, watching in Abbotsford, BC, says, wow, that insight about how your gifts weren't lining up. Your dark, your dark hallways is profound. Thank you for sharing anybody else wants to throw there's there's more at the top but uh i gotta get going here back monday night 
same time, 8 p.m. Eastern. Thanks again to the Probert family for having me down in Windsor. Shout out to our friend, Wacy Rabbit, who's also in recovery. He celebrated his one year clean and sober right here on this show by sharing his story. Guess what? He got hired by the Saskatoon Blades as their assistant coach. Way to go, Wace. Super proud of this guy. The Blades, that's a great hire for the Saskatoon Blades. Those kids stand to learn so much. Yes, on the ice, he was drafted by the Boston Bruins, played professional hockey for a long time. But the gifts that he's going to give to those young athletes off the ice is going to be far surpassing. And uh, I'm just so proud of him and so happy to see that he got a shot there in Saskatoon. And that's where he played his junior too. Anyways, that's it for me. Uh, Until next time, be kind. Find gratitude in the little things. Even if you're struggling, take a moment. Understand that you're alive, that you're breathing, that life is precious. And it's pretty damn awesome. Sometimes we just have to sift through all the bullshit. It's not always easy. But I'll tell you what, if you're alive, you're listening, you're watching this, what a gift this life is. Go out there and create whatever it is that you want to create. Go after it. Don't listen to other people. That's it. Check out Puck Support. Follow at Puck Support. PuckSupport.com. We got some new merch. Mental health over hockey shirts. We got some new hats coming down the line with leather patches that are going to look sharp. Use promo code HOPE. It's going to save you 15% on your order. And thank you to everyone who supported Puck Support. We got some big news coming down the line, don't we, Stuart? I know you're watching. Chair of the board for the Puck Support Network nonprofit slash charity that we're working towards very 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 excited uh, to finally be able to get this off the ground it was a goal two years ago over two years ago um makes me emotional to think about it thank you to Stuart and everyone who's involved susan denise alana graham bonner al hicks robert graham among others I'm going to shut up now. Thank you to Tony Hoffman. See you guys on Monday. If you're watching, please, 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 please like, subscribe, and share with your friends. That's how we do things around here. We rely heavily on you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hello to my kids in BC. I love you. I miss you. Until next time, make it a great day if you so choose. I want the real stuff, everybody listen up Cause I'll only say it once, I'm gonna show you all the path If you want it bad, I'm gonna show you every side Yeah, how you can get it back, yeah, cause I ain't never done I'll be number one, working hella hard until I get just what I want Yeah, rises like the sun, yeah, fatal like a gun Shooter's gonna shoot and I'm gonna shoot until I fall Yeah, let's do it alone, so I gotta get through it And the only thing I know is to love what I'm doing Never give up, never slow till